customer experience is your brand. All about the interaction that a customers customer are not just customers that can the be kind of experience you give to people. Customers. That's what they're going. Amazon wants you to buy something. A warranty company wants their contractors. Customer to experience, you know, it really is how your brand gets projected out in, into the world. Business is not just business; it's very human. Hello, ladies and gents. This is your host, Todd Stewart, and welcome back to another episode of In The Know, a dispatch-powered podcast dedicated to highlighting the individuals and companies who know how to create memorable, long-lasting customer experiences. Today, we have a very special guest. I'd like to introduce you to Luke Williams, the head of customer experience at Qualtrics. He is an impressive guy. He authored a New York Times bestseller, The Wallet Allocation Rule, Winning the Battle for Share, and is known as a top 20 researcher by Survey Magazine. In addition to the New York Times, he is a USA Today bestselling author and is considered a top 10 author in leadership and management. In today's discussion, We'll cover a handful of fascinating topics and address questions like what is the experience gap and why should enterprises try their hardest to close it? At what point can companies cross the chasm from good to bad to decent customer experience? And of course, many other interesting topics. So as always, grab a pen, grab some paper, and please enjoy this excellent conversation with the one and only Luke Williams. All right, Luke, welcome to the show. How you doing? I'm doing well, Todd. Thanks for having me. Love the headquarters here. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun being uh, another tech shop, see all the great stuff that's going on here. Yeah, thanks for yeah. coming. Thanks Thank for you. coming. Um, so in full disclosure, I've really been eagerly waiting for this podcast. I mean, not because we're going to cover interesting topics like the experience gap and you know common customer experience hurdles and how customers experience helps enterprises with retention, their share of wallet. Uh, but I'm really excited because we actually have a mutual connection. And for everybody listening, so Luke and I had a pre-call before the show to, to just talk about ideas. And it, it started to come out where I was from and where Luke was from originally. And usually when people ask me that question, I say, well, I'm just from Western Mass because the town that I'm from, usually people don't know. And Luke just had this little uptick in his voice and he said, oh really, where in Western Mass are you from? And and right then and there, I'm like, all right, you probably know the town. So I said, I'm from Longmeadow. And Luke goes, oh my gosh, the convenience store in Longmeadow, Little Peach. Do you know Little Peach? I'm like, Little Peach? <laughs> I used to go there all the time when I was a kid and, and it was the best. You could get five cent bazookas, you could get slushies. And unfortunately, it's, it's not around anymore. A, a bank came in, but this is such an iconic place in, in my heart and in the, the history of Longmeadow. And I have never, ever met anybody that's known it outside of Longmeadow. And so right when you, you said this, I was like, I feel like I'm interviewing a brother here. Yeah. It, it's, the, it's the secret wink. It's the, it's the, the wink and a nod. I mean, the, the little peaches, uh, an institution and like all institutions, eventually they come to a close. And I think it's, I think it's a, they paved it over and put up a bank. Yep. Or something like that. Yeah, it's but, there's there's a, a lacrosse store over there. UPS store is right yeah. there too. So. The, the pride of Long Meadow, no longer. <laughs> it's a scar on the history of the community. So I am so excited to uh, to to get this conversation started. Um, but 
but I like to start off episodes with this segment called the super tools. And it's an opportunity to um, have listeners learn from you about what you use on a day-to-day basis. It could be technology, it could not be technology. Um, things that help you streamline your work and basically make your life easier. So it kind of paints a little picture about you and, and what you do on a day-to-day basis. My day-to-day is a little bit hectic. It starts 5 a.m. Uh, like in clockwork. I drink Dunkin' Donuts coffee for breakfast because I'm from New Jersey. And the day is largely about managing time. Something I learned early on, particularly as I started to manage larger and larger teams, it was really necessary for me to learn how to manage time in order to get through the day with the stuff that I had to do and make sure that my teams were taken care of. So I adopted initially a tool that was a meticulous uh, tracking of my calendar. Mm -hmm. So at the start of any one day, I may look triple or quadruple booked for every single moment of that day. But as every half hour block passes, I ensure that I go back and update my calendar. It just takes 10 seconds of what I did in that half hour period. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I reach Friday, I have a perfect, pristine catalog of exactly all of my time and how it was spent. Mm -hmm. And this was really useful for me, particularly as a young manager, to figure out really where I was spending my time and maybe how I needed to figure out how to modulate that. But a skill that I picked up recently that I picked up from one of the co-founders of Qualtrics, uh, who's my boss, Jared Smith, who's a fantastically brilliant guy. And you ask him the same sort of question, you're expecting this mind blowing Mm -hmm. solution to this, you know, problem. How do I, how do I do so much in a day? And his, his solution, it's elegant and it's simple. It's take a post-it, You write the three things that you're going to do that day, come hell or high water, no matter what, write them down and you don't leave until they're done, Mm. which means you can leave at four o'clock or you can leave at midnight, but you're not leaving until those three things are done. Yeah. And if you focus on those three things and keep it visual uh, in your your line of sight, you're going to make sure that every conversation you have is working towards those three goals. And if you do a good job of setting those three goals, you're going to get to the end of the week having accomplished 15 serious things. And if you start stacking that up across a number of weeks and months, mm-hmm. Kim Scott, who's a who's a really well-known uh, executive from Google, she runs in the same circle, Sheryl Sandberg, she's a luminary in the space, she's on our board of directors. And she once said that Jared Smith was one of the most productive employees she's ever seen in her entire life. Awesome. And he attributes it to this, this posted approach. And I'll tell you, if you actually, if you just try it for a week mm-hmm. and you stick to it, it's a super tool. Yeah, for sure. I, I can see it. So it's, it's it's a tool, but it's also it's a mindset. It's a mindset of of your day to day. But but I I can see that because like people so many times they they start off their week they'll they'll list everything out and and you almost you feel a little underwater like mm-hmm. like you're drowning because you have so much to do and then you don't know what to start on. It, it, it's like either I can take a, a huge bite and then just chew as fast as I can and everything gets done kind of half heartedly, or you can focus on a couple things here and there. Particularly, so if you're if you work at the type of company that basically anything after sort of 11 a.m. on Thursday is basically the weekend, these are the types of folks who could really benefit. I love from the it. Approach. I love it. So the theme of the show is why enterprises should focus on one thing and one thing only, and that is closing the experience gap. And we're going to dive into that. We're going to discuss every nuance of this topic and and tease out the important aspects of it. But but first. I'd like to define what customer experience means to you and what it means to Qualtrics. This is one of those things that's got a Wikipedia definition. Like you can, you can Google this and there's an answer for it. Mm-hmm. But in my mind, 
customer experience is the sum total of tangible and intangible interactions between a company and the customer. The reason I make sure to include the intangible, Mm because a lot of times when we measure customer experience, we focus on service delivery. We focus on, you know, hey, you came to do this thing. Mm -hmm. How well did you do on this? Were we very effective at delivering that the way that you wanted it? Is the product good? Were our employees nice? All those sorts of things that build on on this tangible aspects of how you interact with with companies. Mm-hmm. But there's this intangible part that you pick up through advertising, through the tone with which employees work with you. You can sense whether or not they're doing it voluntarily or involuntarily when they really want to help you out. And there's these cues. Sometimes they're visual, sometimes they're audible. Sometimes mm-hmm. you pick it up through other people's experiences. If If my wife has a bad experience with a brand, that I've never heard of, I hate that brand. Yeah. <laughs> so customer experience to me is sort of this orb that travels around a brand that can sometimes touch you even when you least expect it. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit ethereal. Mm-hmm. In the sense of what we believe at Qualtrics, we focus really on four experiences, compound experiences, customer experience, um, the experience obviously that customers have working with a company, whether it be transactional or relationship, employee experience, brand experience, and product experience. And those things kind of work together such that the branding aspect, the advertising, the positioning, the products that you build, how you train your employees, ultimately becomes the sum total of customer experience. And when we measure customer experience, those are really the types of things that we're measuring, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So from our perspective, we actually view this as four parts of one thing. Mm -hmm. So it's like trying to describe the, the left quadrant of a soccer ball right? The ball rolls. How do you track that thing? It's really one thing. And for us, it actually collapses down just to experience in some total, because how do you, you know, you can differentiate between the experience you have with the employee as idiosyncratic if it's bad, but if every employee behaves badly, that's just who the company is. Mm -hmm. That's just how they hire this. They're clearly putting their values someplace else. This is the fuzzy part for us. There's tons of science that goes into it, but explaining what it is, it's almost like, how do you explain blue sky? It's just there. You get it. it it's intuitive. Yeah. And everyone, and the beauty of customer experience is that everybody is a customer, mm-hmm. de facto. So you can immediately internalize. When I say customer experience, you know what it is that we're referring to. What point in your career did customer experience become like the foundation of your thinking? Was it always? Was it at a point all of a sudden halfway through your career? Like all people, I started thinking about this at age five. You know, what do I want to be when I grow up? And I said, I think I'm going to be a statistician and research <laughs> methodologist. Truth, truth be told, if you had asked me 10 years ago, uh, maybe not 10, maybe like 12, um, I was just coming out of graduate school. I went to the UK to do my master's degree in research methods and statistics because at the time, and even now, it's very difficult to find a research methods program in the US of any quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I came out and I really wanted to work at the UN. That was my goal. I have I have had then, and I do have now, a belief that you can save the world through great research. Oftentimes, you know, it's not hard for people to identify what a problem is or why it's important, but to get them motivated to do something about it, there's some there's a disconnect there. I think that research can fill that gap. So I was coming out of school and there were just not a lot of jobs cooking for, to work in the NGO and the UN uh, space to save the world. 
even though I thought, you know, hey, I'll, I'll work for cheap and travel a lot. So I ended up taking a job at a great company called Ipsos, which is most people will know it's the world's largest survey-based research firm. And I fell in with uh, a guy there who became my mentor. He's a great guy. His name is uh, Dr. Tim Kiningham. He's mm-hmm. fantastic. And he and I developed a really close relationship. Actually, he, he actually did the vows at my wedding. Uh, but he was the one who sort of brought me into this space mm-hmm. because I was focusing on the world very much from a research purity standpoint up until that point. How do we, you know, what, what are the highest quality methods for us to acquire information in a world that even, even if we had perfect access, we wouldn't know what it is that we wanted to access. Yeah. Really pursuing research methods more than this type of research. And at the time he had been, become well-known for being a little bit of a flamethrower in the early days of, of the net promoter score. He was actually the first one mm. to start publishing academically on that topic. And people can certainly read the tail of the tape on, on everything that happened there. But he was the first one to describe to me customer experience as it was known then, customer loyalty. It's yeah. evolved over time, but about how that could be played as a strategy. And it intrigued me because it always occurred to me that this space was born out of just checking the boxes. Did we give you that thing with the smile? Because mm-hmm. I didn't know much about the space at the time. Mm-hmm. And he was the one who really showed me the depth of what what this could be. And over the years, um, managing my own teams and being promoted through the cycles and eventually getting to work for him directly mm-hmm. uh, was a, a huge learning process. It took me a long time. It took me nine years to really absorb as much as I could from him to be in a place where I felt like I could really start picking up the football and starting to extend out into my own. And actually, you know, we, we obviously still uh, are frequently in touch and our, our research paths are, have diverged a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was really those formative years at Ipsos that set me up with this foundation of having rock solid science that you could publish in research journals, but also be able to change companies from the inside out. Yeah. And he was a fervent believer in the business philosophy of basically changing companies such that they treat people better a very simple philosophy mm. and, and an admirable one. But he was an MBA from Vanderbilt, which also meant that he wasn't screwing around when it came to running a business. He understood that we can't just make people happier for the sake of making them happier. You also need to take care of your business as well, because if your customer doesn't like your product, they can go get it someplace else. If you don't take care of your business, you got a thousand people out on the street and that's a problem. So he very much is a believer and I am also a believer in the equity of a relationship. And he was very relationship driven and is a very relationship driven person. And when he talks and consults with companies still, he's actually, he's a professor now at St. John's University, a chaired professor. Um, And, you know, he talks about this balance Mm -hmm. and understanding the pragmatics of running a business. And and that's really where I kind of approached in the customer experience space. I kind of came in through the side door. Mm -hmm. I think maybe in the way that many CX people do, Right, they they tend to be they tend to have a high emotional quotient. You tend to see a lot of people from psychology backgrounds, marketing backgrounds, and yeah. you know, in many yeah. ways, I think <laughs> if we were honest with ourselves, but sort of like the riffraff, you know, social sciences. You know, I have my undergrads in sociology. The group. That's right. Yeah. And trying to figure out where to fit in this giant company of engineers. You know, what do we do with the sociologist type of thing? Yeah. So that's really uh, how I got into it. I still I got into the space when it was still service quality customer satisfaction and customer loyalty, mm-hmm. customer experience kind of evolved out of that 
yeah, sort of. What what was that driver of the evolution between that? Is it essentially the same thing? It it's not. Mm-hmm. It, it's not the same thing. I think a lot of things changed right around 2009, 2010. We started making a much bigger shift towards customer experience because the nature of two things changed. The nature of the customer and the nature of what experience meant. We always had, you know, if there was a problem with a company, most of the times the only people would ever know about it was the company. You know, remember if you were like a little kid, you have something like made the local news, right? It was this huge deal. And now people you've never heard of have 250,000 Twitter followers post a video of one poor interaction. And all of a sudden everybody steps on the gas and starts going crazy because somebody had a bad day in Des Moines, Iowa while working behind a cash register. It's like Mm -hmm. the the speed at which everything started to change made loyalty a somewhat anachronistic term Hmm. because there's this developing belief, which I don't agree with, that loyalty is a dying thing. And I don't think it's dying. I think just loyalty is being tested in ways that's never been tested before as a result of that speed and that availability of options. Options as in technology? Options from the customer's standpoint. In 2009, Amazon was definitely alive and well, but the hyper-proliferation and saturation of categories with new opportunities um, from upstarts. I mean, look at Etsy, for example completely disrupted the trinket space, (laughs) but was also one of the first places that you could, Etsy was one of the first places you can get 3D printed material. Mm -hmm. I mean, having access to that type of technology was just, you know, and it, and it made, it gave everybody the opportunity to be entrepreneurial. And we're certainly living in maybe not the golden age of, of entrepreneurial activity, but maybe we're living in the era just before that, Mm -hmm. because there's this hyper proliferation of, customization that becomes necessary. Loyalty was one of these things that was earned, but customization allows someone to find something that fits them immediately. Right. And it's almost like, it's almost like that moment where, you know, I met my wife for the first time. It's like everything else just came into focus. It was like everything leading up to this point wasn't real because this person fits me Mm -hmm. period. Mm -hmm. Now I get it. And customers have that option now. And you can almost get the sense of when you see, when you look at the data and you see all this testing behavior, the testing behavior happens because there isn't sufficient drive to not have testing behavior. And even the most staunch loyal relationships from a customer and firm standpoint have to be tested and retested over time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's to test and then learn that you were right to be where you're at. Right. And, and I think that, so the reason we got away from customer loyalty is because there was this focus on service. And I think the place where it honestly came from was we had hit the peak when it came to production of stuff. Guess where my shirt was made? I don't have a clue. In 1975, you held up an object that was made from China and you knew it was made from, I mean, it was, it, you know, yeah. there's the Homer Simpson line, like the joke is like, how did the Chinese get talked into making this stuff? <laughs> and, and that's exactly where this comes from because that now is gone. So if you look at, I can get products anywhere. Mm -hmm. So why should I get it from CVS instead of Walgreens? It has to be this experience-driven differentiation. (music) 
so I, I, I'm going to actually end the show. I, I, I was like, you know, I'm going to end the show with kind of the future of customer experience. But hey, let's ask you right now. Yeah. Uh, so experience was that main differentiator that that's going to end up making a company win versus making a company drown. Is that going to be the future? What do you think is in store? Some people might say that I have a fair amount of expertise in this space. And my answer is, I've got notions, but I probably don't, I don't have a single clue because there are certain tenets of business that have never, ever changed and never will. I fly United. Mm -hmm. I fly United a lot. I'm their highest earned status level. I fly out of Newark airport, which means you basically are flying United wherever you go. And I have my specific reasons for flying them. But if I had a ton of bad experiences with United and I couldn't take it anymore, mm -hmm. what I'd find is a new depth in my soul of tolerating pain because there's no alternative to me. There's there's too many structural barriers in that particular industry preventing mm -hmm. me from doing other things. Um, the, the the friends and family plan was a genius invention in the telco in the wireless provider space. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because now we took away your individual choice about what kind of plan you wanted and whether or not you left the company. You now had to get three or five people to agree to move this thing or one really really loud person. Yeah. Right. So. Developed sectors are constantly trying to seek ways to build structural barriers that capture and in some ways create hostage customers, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think that the experience gap was born out of this need for a firm to optimize how much we service the customer. It's like, we, we listen, we could give you A-plus service, but we don't need to. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to do that. Mm -hmm. And then over time, what they started to trick themselves into is like that this, this B-minus treatment, they said, well, that's the gold standard. Hmm. And then you walk around enough companies and you hear, we're best in class this, we're best in class that. And if you put them all into a room and have them say it to each other, it's like you could create a Seinfeld comedy uh, out of <laughs> yeah, watching exactly. people tell, tell each other how amazing they La are. Larry David's next spinoff. Yeah. And there's, there's just going to be this precipice for firms. And I don't know what it's going to be. Outside the structural barriers, competition will be based through experience. And if you look at things like Amazon Go, a complete human-centered redesign of the customer retail experience. Mm -hmm. And they say that the rumors of 2000 stores aren't true. At least that's what Amazon's saying. But I buy that. I buy that that may not be scalable yet. Because if you think about the amount of technology required to deliver that experience, profits have got to be pretty thin, but probably negative. Yeah. And I don't know that for a fact, but it's just sort of spitballing. But at the end of the day, five, 10 years from now, I assure you that that technology will not be one off mm -hmm. that there's there's it's it's a space waiting for a disruptor to come in and say that's how we do it mm -hmm. and all of a sudden when you do things like that when you have fundamental changes in technology technology has always been the most primitive and primary form of disruption mm -hmm. it's the wheel it's the wedge yeah. it's escalators you know if you're a lazy person like i am it's it's all these things that fundamentally change the premise of the question and i think that there's definitely in the future going to be a push towards that, but to a point of hilarity. Mm -hmm. There's easy ways for companies to go out of business. One of them is to spend too much money servicing customers. And, it, and it, you, can, you can deliver $800,000 worth of service for a $25 price tag, but it's not going to work out. Mm -hmm. So there's got to be inventive ways that firms can capture what they need and customers can get what they need. To me, that, that dyadic relationship goes back to sort of that customer loyalty. Like, we're yeah. in this together. Yeah. yeah. Good, yeah. honest firms, like they tell you, we're in this together. From an enterprise standpoint, how, how has customer experience changed? Like the more companies that I speak with on this show, like 
it, I, I tend to hear like when I ask the question, when was, when did all of a sudden customer experience become like this measurable thing or this, this thing that all C level people started to put front of their mind. It's like, I get answers probably around, I'd say like five to three years ago, fairly recent. Why all of a sudden is it becoming more and more important within the enterprise? Is it that experience gap, the, the thing that you mentioned earlier? I don't know that it's the experience gap as much as it's the fear of the gap. I think seeing disruption happen at a more rapid pace over the past five and 10 years has helped even the biggest companies recognize that no position is safe if you're standing still. Like this is a horror movie. Like you need to stay on the jets. Like you need to yeah. get, you need to be running. And this is one of those things where you don't know what you don't know. Even if you try to find out uh, everything that you can, they, there may, still might be a gap. And what it forced companies to start doing is to pay hyper-focused attention, laser-focused attention on figuring out my customers and how best I can serve them. And I think that firms understand that that carries a lot of weight because you can buy an insurance policy anywhere. You can look at an insurance policy and you go to those like pricing tools and I put in all the things that I want and it gives me 15 quotes and they're all within like five bucks of each other. And then there's this one low price one over here, but I know if I have a claim, it's probably never going to work out. So I go for the second cheapest one. How do I fight commoditization? And companies are trying to future-proof against commoditization. And the easiest way to create a sustainable competitive advantage is to have something that's inimitable, something that cannot be copied. And that's people. Mm -hmm. Customer experience, in my opinion, is an employee experience problem mm -hmm. on every level because it's either the frontline staff delivering the experience, it's the employees who are creating products or services that are delivering the experience, or the people who support those two types who are enabling the experience in some way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, that process of getting companies to hire well, to have employees who are bought in, who care about the customer, who are eager to make change, eager to do away with friction points, that's valuable and difficult to, to create. I think that that's where we're starting to see that rise of CX mm -hmm. is this eradication of, or the desire to eradicate variance or holes in the company's fabric. This gap, this experience gap, uh, everybody, Luke had an incredible Harvard Business Review webinar and, uh, and, and spoke all about this. Let, let's sort of define what that experience gap is. The, so the ex experience gap is this belief by CEOs in this particular study, roughly 80%, who believe that their firms are delivering superior customer experience. When you ask the customers of those firms, only 8% agreed. This chasm, this yawning precipice between the two mm -hmm. is the experience gap. It's where all the danger lies for a firm because the biggest calamities happen when the most fundamental things that we take for granted are completely shaken to their core. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that do the most critical damage to a company, sometimes in ways that make it inevitable that the company will fail. Such as? Oh, I think there's a litany of examples. I don't want to pick on any one. Mm -hmm. Certainly, there's a number of retailers mm -hmm. who have gone through this problem. Uh, there's been a number of financial institutions that have gone through these types of problems. Certainly, airlines are no stranger 
to what this gap is. Mm-hmm. My my favorite quote from uh, Jeff Smizek, who's the former CEO at United, not to pick on United, uh, was quoted in, in an article that said, was asked about um, ex- the experience for passengers. And his response to the reporter was, my job is to make sure you get from A to B safely with your underwear. That's my job. When you think about that, that's that's pretty much personification of the experience gap. Yeah. Because that freedom of choice for customers means that if you can't close that gap, they're going to find a way to close it for you. So you can either be the actor in this or you can be the one who is acted upon. Yeah. And you don't want the customer to do the acting because their solution is going to be rapid. They're not going to wait months and months while you figure out your backend operations. They're not going to wait a year for you to develop a new loyalty program. They're just going to switch and they're going to switch their very next opportunity that they have to do it. Yep. And the experience gap is just, I, I think of it as just this deadly drop zone where there's two ways that you sort of have this gap develop. One is through blissful ignorance, this belief that you're awesome when you're not. And the other one is willful ignorance of saying, we know that we're not as good as we should be, but it's always how this company worked. Yeah. It's tough. You know, we we just we don't do well with change here. Yeah, no, of course you don't do well with change. <laughs> Nobody does well with change. Yeah. That's why it's a critical skill that you have to learn. Yeah. Uh, and so there's all kinds of reasons and all kinds of ways that the biggest companies on the planet find ways to explain away why the experience gap is tolerable to them. Those are the firms that will be greatly diminished by the first actor in the space to say, no, I care. Mm-hmm. I I I care whether or not the customer has a great experience mm-hmm. because I'm in the people pleasing game. Yeah. Right. I do. I'm an internet service provider. My primary function is to be an internet service provider, but that is not the vision that leads me. I'm the gateway to entertainment, to education, to connecting families. I have these bigger things that are not focused on my business, but focused on the people who pass through my business and that human centered focus, that customer centric focus is the basis for closing that gap. But in order to have a roadmap for how to do that without sort of, you know, wobbling all over the road with your bicycle, you know, you ever watch a kid ride a bike, right? It's hilarious. I mean, they're all over the road. Like this is the most inefficient thing possible. There's, there's just not, there's not going to be any place for you to hide. And if you don't figure out how to get from A to B efficiently, you're not going to be able to close the gap fast enough. So that's why we believe that the measurement process essentially is the tool of enlightenment that's necessary to unlock the potential of the employees to fix the problem themselves. Data doesn't tell you how to fix problems. Mm -hmm. The statistical analysis can recommend you changes, but how that change gets made, how good that change is, that's on the company. Mm-hmm. So from our totally. every time, yeah, from yeah. Our, from our perspective, this this tool takes away banal activities and takes you ten steps closer to the goal of making change. You can't close the experience gap without having an action verb mm-hmm. somewhere, mm-hmm. whatever it's going to be down so, down to those employees that are. And the experience gap is crippling. I mean, it's it's a it's a crippling disease for many companies. And I'll say. Again, not to pick on any one company, but you know, just pulling from the headlines, right? J.C. Penney went through this during the Ron Johnson era. Yeah, maybe one of the most well-known because of the disconnect from what that CEO believed or mm-hmm. the way or the decisions that got made for what a variety of reasons. They're not, you know, Ron Johnson wasn't sitting in his office like twirling his 
his evil mustache, like thinking of ways that he's going to upset customers. <laughs> yeah. He had the best intentions of the company, its shareholders and its cust- and its customers in mind. It just didn't pull off mm-hmm. because that gap wasn't filled before. You know, you got to fill that gap before you can walk that bridge. And that came chronic, you know, just sort of out of order a little bit. The timing was off. So for, for companies that, um, that they're, they're trying to improve their experience, right? They are moving from bad to decent to great, uh, and, and they're measuring it. So they're trying to essentially like bridge this chasm between the two. How can you better define those lines that say, wow, I do have bad experience. This is, I'm halfway through, I have decent experience and, and now I have great customer experience. Cause I started to think about actually like when you were mentioning like companies that outright say that, yes, we have bad experience. That's part of our brand. The first company that I, I, that comes to mind and I, I feel bad. I'd make up the section out. I don't know, but, uh, is I, I feel like Ikea, they say our huh. experience, we, that is part of our brand that you have to go through hell to get your furniture and you're going to go through hell to try to build your furniture, but we're not going to change. What would you say to them? It's funny you mention IKEA because I think from an experience standpoint, there's definitely things that can be improved, but they're very honest about who they are and what they are and why they are the way they are. And none of it's malicious. None of it. Their philosophy around furniture, around efficiency, There's a thousand different ways that you can explain the benefits of how they do business, environmentally, operationally, whatever. When you ask the people who shop there, there's no gap in the expectation. I'm I'm getting a table Mm -hmm. for $129. Mm -hmm. The customer's willing to sacrifice something for that. The truth about IKEA is that they're delivering on the experience either as expected or above the expectation. People can sometimes be pleasantly surprised by Ikea, but it's also like going through army boot camp. I mean, they torture you. They make you walk every inch of their retail space. There's no question about the effectiveness of that strategy around peripheral purchases of intended purchases versus the stuff that you walk out with. So essentially the the main theme of that is, is that what the company is stating and what they believe matches the expectations. So that yeah. gap is not as big. And so when, so you ask the question, yes. And that, so when you ask the question about how do they go from really, really bad to essentially normal and from normal to really, really amazing, these are two fundamentally different transformations. Pulling a customer out of a scenario where they're experiencing undue pain Mm -hmm. and bringing them up to that expectation level is usually about fixing stuff that should never have been broken in the first place. Yeah. Right. It's I walk I walk in to a store and they are out of my kid's favorite cereal and my kid is screaming and I understand that my child is being irrational but I'm bummed that this thing wasn't here. This is a process that should not be broken. Will stocking this make me a delighted person? No. You have a sign. You have a place for it. There should be some. There should be that cereal there. And and that that's going to move from bad to normal. Bad to sort of operating around expectations. Could be just below or just above. But to go from that expectation level to something astronomical is incredibly unique to each company of 
how do we envision what your expectation is and how do we blow that away, but in a way that's consistent with our brand, consistent with how we operate as a company. So JetBlue, right? Famous example that we like to, to use. They were looking at, they look at satisfaction as most airlines do, satisfaction based on routes going mm-hmm. from state, they call station to station, different airports, essentially. So on one particular route, they notice abnormally low customer satisfaction during very specific times of the day. Hmm. And they noticed, hey, these morning flights, we have, we're seeing really low customer satisfaction. We're starting to see a lot more aggressive open-end feedback, whatever the case may be. And they drill into it and they realize that this particular location doesn't actually sell coffee before these particular flights take off. So their solution was a human-centered design thinking of saying, the problem is there's no coffee. Let's get coffee. Pretty basic, pretty straightforward. Is JetBlue in the coffee delivery business? No, JetBlue is in the experience business. So that's one simple example of how you go from meeting expectations to exceeding expectations. The customer receives that information and processes it as value. That's something I love that about them. They do this little thing. I have a great example of this. So it's like additional value. A good good, good friend of mine. So here, and again, a simple example. A good friend of mine, her name is Stephanie. She's a big fan of ice cream, as we all are. And she once uh, was enjoying Turkey Hill Farms ice cream, or Turkey Hill ice cream. Turkey Hill. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Turkey Hill ice cream. And just because this is the type of person she is, she wrote them a letter. She said, hey, I just want you to know, I really love your ice cream. Mm-hmm. Like, keep up the good work. Turkey Hill then sends her some ridiculous, like $200 worth of coupons for free ice cream. Says, hey, we're super glad you love our ice cream. Have some ice cream on us. Yeah. Here's a company that said, we've got this customer. It's great. They're going to buy from us. We're going to make money for that. And their reaction was to go the other way and say, I, I want to make sure you understand, like, we received your letter. We care that you care. Mm-hmm. And we love that you love us yep. because we love you too. And then we had to listen to Stephanie tell this story to 175 different people every time we met. So the question is from, you know, this is in the era just before targeted digital media. Mm-hmm. The question is, is would you pay $200 to have one well-respected, good value actor go out and tell 200 people about your brand? Yeah. So I actually have a story to follow up on that. Okay. Adidas, I will be Adidas, Adidas fan for life. So I sent them a tweet with a photo of all the Adidas running shoes I've had in my life. I've right. held on to them. Did you have the Marathon 10s? Uh, no, the, I didn't, the, I didn't the, have those. The, they were, they were yeah. strictly just uh, Ultra Boost, their Ultra mm-hmm. Boost line. And so I had, I, I had their very first model all the way to, I think they're, they're probably on like five. I think, I think mm-hmm. they're on model five right now. So I had four. And I sent him a tweet. I was like, Adidas, I love you guys. Like you guys are my running, running shoes for choice. And they responded back and they said, hey, DM me or DM us. So I DM them and we had a private conversation on Twitter. And they said, what's your address? We're going to send you some, some thank you stuff. So they go, like, oh, wow, that's really nice of you guys. Like I was at the time, I was just expecting like an Adidas like sticker or, or a little yeah. note or something. They sent me two pairs of shoes they sent me a, a pair of shorts, a pair of running tights, like leggings, and two shirts. And in total, that's probably like close to like $400 of free stuff. Retail, yeah. Yeah, and I'm not even that good of a runner. It's not like they're, yeah. <laughs> they want, it's not like they're sending to Usain Bolt to all of a sudden yeah. tweet out. 
And to me, I, I mean, I've done the same thing. I go around to everybody and whenever they're wearing Adidas, I'm like, oh, awesome Adidas. Like, and I, and I tell them this story and I'm now their customer for life, but they went above and beyond in that case. And it was to a, a no name. And, and I think in, in my mind, and this is just my personal opinion, but with lots of evidence, <laughs> there's, I think that there's something about this that actually hinges on the notion of authenticity, mm -hmm. that it felt authentic. They, it was a handwritten note too. Yeah. It said, Todd, thank you for wearing our shoes. Yeah. And it felt quote unquote on brand mm -hmm. for what is like, I know that this brand cares. I get that this brand gets me. And this is just a physical demonstration of all the things that I already love about this brand. In interesting ways, this type of thing has actually begun to dig a hole in the CX space, a very deep hole. And I'm worried about it because there are such phenomenal experiences being delivered now. It's almost like what happened to the touchdown dance in football. Mm -hmm. It went from something, you know, I'm in Boston, so I have to mention it's like when Gronkowski oh, scores a touchdown. Thank you. I appreciate and that. He slams that football on the ground. It is a release of emotion. It's physical. It's spiritual. It's this perfect instance of image meets me. Mm -hmm. And I'm a, I'm a, you know, if I'm a Patriots fan, like that thing lands. You now have a bunch of brands out there trying to gronk the ball. Mm -hmm. And they're going over the top with these experiences that they're beginning to set expectations that under regular business cycles, they cannot reasonably attain again this level of, of exceeding expectations. Yes. And all they've done is raise the bar now. Another reason, frankly, that the experience gap exists is because this is starting to proliferate. People are expecting more and more. The gap is getting wider because what was good enough for your customer a year ago is no longer good enough to satisfy them because they're being enticed by all these amazing things that are happening. And it's, mm -hmm. hey, did you hear about you know, Chick-fil-A? Great example. Somebody brings a dog in, they're with the family, said, hey, it's a cute dog. He's like, oh yeah, it's, his, it's, the, it's the dog's birthday. We're taking the dog out you know, for a little chicken, whatever. The Chick-fil-A employees who are completely empowered by the Chick-fil-A franchisees, mm -hmm. which is one of the most beautiful things that an employee can be, is a free thinking, intelligent- and I love how you say empowered. Empowered yeah. and enabled. They, they just pull somebody off the shift, tell them to run down to the store, they get a cake for the dog. Where in the employee manual does it says, if somebody says it's the dog's birthday, go get a cake for the dog. What it says in the employee manual is do everything reasonably within your power to make customers as happy as they can be so that they see our establishment as a place of joy. Yeah. Super simple, first principles, iconic. That's what it is. That's value, the culture. Yeah, yeah. Value-led culture. And they built experience around that. Chick-fil-A is a superior experience delivery brand, right? As a result. Mm -hmm. And when you think about the best brands in the in the space, they take that touchdown dance and make it routine. But their operations support it. There's a lot of work that goes into making it happen that way. And for the companies that aren't well-developed around those core principles and sort of grow organically around those core principles, they just do it for flash, they can never meet that high again. And that, that level of attachment lasts as long as either A, the emotion, or B, the news cycle. One of the things that that you know I fundamentally believe in is that the advancements in these amazing technology software out there, Uber, OpenTable, Lyft, Grubhub, 
it, they're incredible because you can get things on demand right now at your fingertips. And so for me personally, my expectation has risen. So I expect when I order an Uber, I'm going to wait max of, let's say four minutes, max, max. But then when it comes to other things now, that expectation has started to bled into other industries. So now I expect companies to respond to me when I ask a question within, let's say reasonably 15, 20 minutes. Like I expect that to come back fast. That to me seems like a massive problem. So now companies have to chase this. They have to essentially grow their operations so that they can meet the expectations of the customer. Obviously that shift and that imbalance seems to be like way out of whack because, because these great technologies are coming in and they're penetrating society on such mass scale. And now I, I expect this with things. So I, I love what you just said. And I know I keep making these cultural references, but um, do you know Louis C.K.? Yeah, the comedian. Oh, yeah. I love him. I love he, him. He does this amazing bit. I'm, I don't know if everyone's ever seen it. About very smart guy, actually. Very smart guy. Very smart. Yeah. And one of one of the, this great bit that he does that I love was um, from the era when Wi-Fi first started coming on planes, mm-hmm. and he was on one of the first planes that had Wi-Fi, or the first time he was ever on a plane that had Wi-Fi. And it was brand new technology, and they, you know, they're boarding and they're telling everybody. Oh, hey, there's going to be Wi-Fi on the plane and this, this, and that. And, you know, they get up to cruising altitude and the Wi-Fi is working. And then after about 10 minutes, it kind of conks out because the early Wi-Fi in planes was very primitive technology. And the Louis C.K. sitting on the plane and the guy next to him just starts getting all out of joy. He's like, oh, it's stupid. And, and Louis C.K.'s reaction is, how can you be mad about something not working that 15 minutes ago you didn't know it existed. Yep. Right. Yeah. And he does an, like a parallel bit around mobile phones, right? The people. So I'm one of these people. Um, my wife hates me because I will physically ha- make angry gestures contact with my phone <laughs> when it doesn't work fast. Wait, wait, wait. Is your screen broken right there? My screen is not broken. Oh, I it's have not actually, broken. Okay. And I don't want to jinx it. I've never ever broken an iPhone or other screen ever. He tells this other story about mobile phones where people get upset now at the speed at which the internet's loading on their phone, right? The internet, which by itself is this amazing thing. The fact that the number of computers working around the world to deliver you specific information simultaneous to that of, say, 4 billion other people simultaneously on your unique device, there's data literally flying through the, like the air right now, passing through you as we speak, and you get upset that this website takes longer than four seconds to load. And his joke is, is like, it's going to space mm-hmm. right? and back. Like, will you give it a minute, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, it's parallel to this because the, the rate of expectation change is essentially, this has happened over and over and over again in the history of human technology intervention, which is that as cohorts fundamentally change, the expectations that come along with it set just totally new standards, but at the same time, it allows those same cohorts to retire, like retire this head trash that prevents them from innovation. So if you look right now at the millennials, they make up about 30% of the workforce. They're really starting to come now into their buying peak. I'm at the tail end of Generation X. I was born in 1978. Mm-hmm. People two years younger than me who are starting to get old, be old, you know, old guys too. They're 37, I'm 39. But that is the leading edge of that generation. And they are starting now to take over the majority of the workforce. 
their buying power is just starting to hit its earliest peak stride. Yeah. And before you know it, the vast majority of people who will be running companies or serving directly serving the people who run companies are going to be made up by this cohort. And this cohort is defined by this, you know, well, I'm an older person, so I'm going to say temperamental, Mm -hmm. but somebody who's in that era would just say, look at what technology has done in a hundred years. What, how do you think that that happens? It happens from people having unrealistic expectations that become the norm. It's having one car per town to two cars in every garage. It's space travel for $30,000. So when you look at the way that industries get disrupted around, this is essentially what industries learn over and over and over again. We learn it cyclically and we're sort of, it's almost like being on the far side of the moon where you can't really see what's directly opposite that. But that notion of expectation of change has happened periodically, Mm -hmm. certainly in this country and certainly in other first world uh, countries where you've seen that expectation. It doesn't happen everywhere. Like an enterprise standpoint, that seems terrifying to me. Can be. Very terrifying. Can be. Um, so, you know, you you previously stated that the experience gap mimics human behavior. Why should you know enterprise be aware of that, and what can they learn from that? And really, like, what do you mean by that? I guess a lot of questions on that one. <laughs> so, this is the most fundamental part of human nature, and our our goal has been to fight instincts in the in the in this era of data where we try to let the data guide us. And what we figured out at the end of the day is that data only goes so far. And humans are not great at recognizing all of their flaws. Mm -hmm. Usually the flaws that we accept in ourselves and are willing to acknowledge are the ones that from an outside perspective are just so obvious that there's no possible path for you to explain away find an excuse for, or otherwise deter me from having you dead to rights on this particular thing that you do that's dumb. Oh, yeah, of course. I trip on a sidewalk. I look down and say, oh, yeah, the sidewalk tripped me, the the crack. Why why do I pay taxes in this town to have sidewalks like this? Exactly. I'm I'm going too slow, so people behind me are honking, and I turn around and say, that person's, why are they honking at me? They're a bad driver, but. mm." This trans, we're human. You go to work as a human, at least last time I checked. And this type of thing carries over, but at least to some degree, when you're working in a company, you're still somewhat removed because it's not you. So you have difficulty sort of accepting flaws or identifying flaws, but your customers can see them. They can see right through it. So this is one of the other places that the experience gap comes from and why so it's essential you know, for companies to be listening all the time. So I tell companies, they say, well, how fast should... I put in these customer experience listening programs or measurement programs or innovation, whatever. And my response to them is, well, people are talking about you right now, whether you're listening or not. I'd recommend hurrying yeah, only because the longer you go without listening, the higher the likelihood of you don't need to listen anymore because there's going to be no saving the ship. Yep. And companies tend to be very good at finding ways to deliver value to customers. Otherwise, they, they typically wouldn't be in business, but going through that process of self-disruption, mm-hmm. of, of being honest about what's not working, even though it worked to get us to this point, the training that it takes you to get to the base camp at Everest is not the same training that it's going to take you to get up Everest. Yeah, And that's a better analogy because most people will never make it, mm-hmm. but it's still a pretty amazing accomplishment 
to have made it that far and beyond. Totally. And that's what people expect, right? When people pick up their phones now and they get on Twitter and I'm having a bad experience at an airport, like I'm expecting immediate resolution to my issue. But how, how, how does that happen? Who told you to have that expectation? Com- companies got so good at sort of feigning that the world revolves around the customer that now everyone knows it's true. It's Those only, expectations are there yeah, now. Yeah. It's like the joke's on them. It's because not only were you so good at now I know what you can do. So from Qualtrics' point of view, like what are some general common hur- hurdles that enterprise face that, that's really inhibiting their own customer experience? I think for me, and maybe Ryan Smith and Jared Smith would say uh, very different things, but I think that the common hurdles that firms face, there's really six to eight customer experience problems for the most part. There's lots of variations on a theme, but for the most part, there tends to be six to eight. I would say the one that baffles companies is the decision-making process of what to do. I've collected all this information. What do I do with it? Because the mechanism worked. The machine turned out this magical box. You, you know, I believe it has certain properties, but how do I know if I'm right? And what do I do with it? How do I make change inside this company? They get stuck in what I refer to as data gazing. And data gazing is, it's, a, it's an emotional state where companies get to a place where they feel like Increment, they're waiting for incremental changes to deliver this whiz-bang result, Yeah. right? And they're trying to keep the pulse in the marketplace and they're making these small changes. And one of the things that we at Qualtrics try to focus on is how do we help the customer through the technology take 10 steps closer to a decision that benefits both the company and the customer alike? That's the goal. How do we help you close that experience gap? That's the goal. And I think that our technology does a very good job of addressing one of those primary hurdles, which is that I don't know what to do next. Sometimes it's more simple than that. Sometimes it's, I just don't know. There's a knowledge gap. I would say many, many companies that are collecting data, whatever the data that it is that they're collecting face that same problem. Yeah. And it's it got to the point where we thought, well, let's just keep collecting data and Watson's going to figure it out for us. There's, there's work that's got to be done. And when you think about what these hurdles are, it's important to note that they don't just affect firms around customer experience. They generally afflict firms altogether. An inability to get people aligned to a vision. If I take the top 10% of executives across every division that you have, mm-hmm. and then I add in, let's say, 150 random employees that I could select, and then I randomly add in 500 customers on top of that, and I ask them all, the same things. Let's say I come up with 15 statements that describe the ideal state customer experience. And I go to those 15 to 20% executives and I say, rate your firm on each of these statements as this describes you right now. This is going to be something that describes you a year from now. This is going to be something that describes you three years from now. Mm -hmm. And you take that data and you analyze it by department and you put it onto a radar chart and you come back to them and you say, look at the gaps between how our departments and our leadership views these different ideal states. If we can't get you 150 people to agree on something, how the hell are you supposed to get 30,000 people marching behind you to be doing so synchronized? Impossible. Impossible. Now, let's go ask the frontline staff what they think about this. The frontline staff do something that those executives don't do. And it's, they talk to customers every day. 
people think, well, these these programs are designed to make sure that we are, you know, taking it back down. We're educating frontline staff is what the problems are. And in some instances, that's absolutely true. If you are working with call centers and you got to you've got to log through fifteen hundred calls a week, yeah, that person's going to need some coaching. It's a high velocity, high stress job. Yeah, right. Absolutely, you need to do that. But oftentimes, let's say for example, hey, we got to be on the lookout for. Customers are unhappy when when products out of stock. The person who's sitting on the front line is going to go, yeah, I know that because I'm the one who they yelled at, right? <laughs> like, they're not confused. Oftentimes, the alignment that we talk about, it's ironic in many ways, has to come from the top. The alignment really happens at the top. And when leadership is aligning companies, it's, it's a much more fluid process then to deliver on better customer experiences because they're the ones who hold the keys. Mm-hmm. If your hiring practices are even half decent, you don't employ a bunch of people who don't care about your customer. Most employees want to do really well for the customer. Yeah. Even just for the sake of having a better life, of not having to deal with angry customers all day. But they want to go beyond that. Most people are just like, hey, I want to put a smile on your face if I can. Yeah. And how do I do that? They're, that's the kind of coaching they're looking for. You know, so I think that that is a hurdle. How do we turn insight around operational deficiency and take that next step of going from meeting expectations to being great? That's a hurdle. Because innovation and strategy are two core skills that are not easily learned. And the other thing about those two core skills is that it's very difficult for people who are unpracticed in those arts to differentiate good from bad. What does good innovation look like? What does bad innovation look like? What does good and bad strategy look like? Only people who do it all the time can really tell you. And what happens is is that there is not a sufficient cadence for change. Firms believe they have to arrive at steady states in order to optimize the efficiency of the change they just made. And that's okay. But there's got to be this process of sort of upping your game as you go, because if you don't, then you're going to be forced to do it under duress. And that's always harder to do. I think that that's a key hurdle. I think when we think about speed, companies get so wrapped up in perfection that it prevents people from ever putting the first stroke of paint to the canvas. Mm-hmm. When, when you say speed and, and perfection, do you mean on um, the changes that are being made from the data that's being collected? Yeah. And also, so yes, but also a lack of urgency. There's a distinct lack of urgency. And I think that it that really emanates from a failure to, I use the phrase, finish that sentence, which is funny because I just didn't finish that sentence. <laughs> so I say, I say, finish that sentence, fill in that sentence of, well, we can't do this. Well, we can't, what does that mean? Finish that sentence. Well, we can't change our policy because it's too difficult. That's a you problem, right? That, mm-hmm. That's all on you, bro. Like yeah. that, that, that's, that's a you problem. Yeah. So when I ask you to finish that sentence, that's usually where people stop. And I say, let me, let me tell you the sentence that comes after that. We can't change this because it's too hard. And as a result, I'm prepared to lose $30 million in revenue this month and market positioning that is fought over by our advertising and branding team, which costs us an additional $5 million a month. That's finishing that sentence, yeah, right? Yeah. So, And I think having that ROI part of customer experience, a very distinct financial benefit, like that's not a fuzzy, hey, let's be great for customers. I'm saying to companies every day, you should be great to customers. Let's find ways to be innovative and amazing for customers. And let's find a way that you can do that profitably.
in, in your webinar, in the Harvard Business Review webinar, you highlighted the financial benefits of customer experience. It, it, it was amazing because I always, I always love when people can actually quantify some things. Yeah. Like, um, I, I read this real interesting study on how, how much value does a story bring to a presentation? And there's this great website, it's called significantobjects.com. And so these scientists, they, and I would love to hear your thoughts on like the process of data collection for this, but they went off to a flea market. They bought a bunch of random junk. I think it was for $132. Each item was, let's say, I think it ranged from like 25 cents to a dollar. They put it online. They created amazing stories. Some of the stories, very few actually had cultural references, like pop cultural references to them. One was like John Goodman had this, it was like a plastic banana and he carried it around with him before every shoot that he had. Uh, and then the other ones were just like amazing stories of this cowboy shot glass that traveled the country. And they found that, so they would, well, they would put it online. They'd say they have this story and it was an, an auction and each item went for, it was on average 3,600% more than the, its original value. So there was this pink pony that they had, is this junky little plastic pony. They bought it for a dollar, they sold it for $103. Uh, there was that shot glass, they bought it for 25 cents, they sold it for, I think that one was like 72 bucks, and I could be wrong about that. Uh, but they, they quantified it. And on your webinar, you said that, that CX can actually bring in value. And so it ranges from five to 10% increase in revenue uh, and 15 to 20% reduction in cost over a short period of time. And I think you said around um, three years. When you explain this to enterprises, is that shocking to them? I don't know that customer or our clients are shocked by that. I think they're just naturally skeptical. Because the CX space right now is occupied by people who come from the analytics world, mm -hmm. by people who come from the research world. As a result of all of this converging in confusing ways for companies, they could listen to a presentation from a technology company like us. They could listen to a presentation from an MR company. They could be listening to a presentation from a change coach. And these stories are going to sound very different. They're all using new vocabularies. And the only consistency in that vocabulary is customer experience. Mm -hmm. And it makes them wary of promises. If you don't break it down into specific, tangible, verifiable, and not verifiable by us, but verifiable by your finance department, of exactly what we do to take data from the customer, blend it with other operational data that you have, model it through our automated modeling mechanisms, right, driven by AI and machine learning, yeah. and come out with divisible strategies that we can deploy across multiple departments, the sum of which is having an effect in different ways in different departments naturally that combine to create easily more than 10x return on your investment. And that type of specificity is what differentiates the kings from the neophytes. You can sense when somebody is trying to pull one over. How do we push companies in the right direction? It's deploying the technology that solves the problem and then making sure that we finish it off with just a complete cementing of the case. And we start at the outset. If we can't get you to believe that there's ROI in this, don't spend money with us. Mm -hmm. 
but we're going to tell you in advance. We're not going to say, hey, buy from us and we'll show you how. We just put that stuff out there. Like this is what an ROI calculation looks like for reducing cost to serve a customer. This is the calculation for reducing cost to acquire a customer. This is formulae for understanding how to drive share of wallet in a competitive environment. That's completely free and clear. Have that. You do whatever you want with that. We know how to use it best, but if you want to use the axe as a paperweight, feel free, mm -hmm. right? We understand customer lifetime value thoroughly and implicitly. That's something that we can help with. How to capture time as something that is a return value to the company. Time is one of those things that is often overlooked by people who don't have a lot of ROI calculation experience. It's one of the most valuable things you can return to a company. And I, I think in my mind that when we start talking about the ways that we, you know, we save money is through like defense strategies, how we earn money is through offense strategies. What we provide at Qualtrics is a technology layer. And that enablement layer starts with unlocking doors you couldn't do yourself. When you start to see that one minute becomes two minutes, there's obvious force multiplier effects occurring. And so when we get into the nitty gritty of the technical stuff that puts disengaged people to sleep, it's very clear where this money comes from. And it's from the same places that your finance department is looking for it. So we don't make claims at the outset. You know, when we talk to a, a prospect and say, use our platform, we're going to reduce churn by 15%. We've had, I've, I've had people say, hey, but if you can tell me you can reduce it by 20%, then like, you know, I'll buy a contract right now. And I would say only an amateur would say yes to that. Yeah. Because customer churn comes from either really bad experiences or your product not matching their needs anymore. And until we understand what portion of your churn is owed to each, we can't possibly guess how much of this we can reduce. Because if you have a frontline service problem, that we can solve in a heartbeat. But if your product just doesn't work in the market, that's a little bit of a longer game. Totally. And, the, and the returns are completely disproportionate. Mm -hmm. Because when you're, when you're talking about solving service problems, you're talking about plugging holes, fixing things that should never have been broken. Like you're essentially what that process does, it preserves customer lifetime value. But if you can't compete in a marketplace and you use our tool to do new product and service innovation, to test new ideas, to understand where the white space is in the market, which competitors you should be attacking and how, that's the huge payoff. That's the win. So we talk about client intelligence. That's where the big money's at. But it's hard to do because you as a firm have to be ready to behave strategically. You need that you need that partnership essentially. So when we return value, 15 to 20% is a very easy number in my mind, but some customers get less mm -hmm. because they're not ready to earn more. Is it because they're not bought in mentally, culturally? It's not it's not that they're not bought in. It's I think it's more that, you know, that's like on an annualized basis, that 15 to 20%. It's that some companies are just starting. There is a there are different levels of maturity in the customer experience space. And you can't be good at everything all at once, particularly if you're new. Mm -hmm. So your gains at the outset, you sort of tend to see like this lump of like really high gains and then this little bit of a trough where you're trying to figure out like, okay, now that I picked all the low hanging fruit, what do I do next? Yeah. And you're now in that process of actually structuring the firm about through this new lens that's brand new for most firms. Because mm -hmm. even though a lot of firms say that they are customer centric, they mean it in a way that they say, Hey, we're thinking about the customer and we're trying to take this product and like reposition or tweak it so that it really does fit the, the, the customer better. Yeah. Well, that's good, better than not doing that. But it's different from saying, let me take 10, 15 steps back and figure out what the client is trying to do mm -hmm. and then design my business around that. 
regardless of what happens to the to my sort of sacred cows. So we use sort of that ROI calculation of saying, like, there's this is no joke. This is a repeatable scientific process. There's money to be made in making people happy. That's why we go after it. It's because I, again, I picked this up from my mentor. I'm in the business of helping our client companies be really, really good to their customers mm-hmm. and to treat them extraordinarily well and do amazing things for them while still making out in the process. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of the the trick of it. So 15 to 20%, um, I don't feel like is ridiculous. And people who who don't who don't buy in, people who are skeptical, mm-hmm. they've typically been wounded. They've mm. been had yeah. at some yeah. point. I can right? see that. That makes sense. You know what I mean? It's like, well, we got all this thing and these fancy promises and nothing happened. Yeah. But it's because they thought that collecting data was enough. There, you have to go through this process of developing insight. When when people look back and they say they've, they've been burned in the past, typically is it based off of their expectation of time, the return to get something faster than what they saw? So a couple of things happen. One, they may have been burned by a process that happened way slower than they thought it would, or that delivered results more with a whimper than a rebel yell, largely promises unkept uh, and, and using reference cases as like, hey, if you're amazing, you could, you could get this or this or that. And it's not process driven. It's, it's enigmatic, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we're, we're trying to create technology that is a system that incorporates our very best thinking and expertise and everything that we know about research methods and measurement and analytics and how to take the outcome of a regression model and explain it in basic human language and just hand that stuff to you. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to think about that anymore. Mm-hmm. And what happens is your t- your time to value goes way down. Yeah. Because it's no longer a four to week consulting process to get field work done, then two weeks to do analysis, a week to do reporting. And then there's a breakdown session. And by the time you know it, a quarter and a half has passed and the market's changed or some other thing has happened. Like that speed and flexibility, that power to the user to move as fast as you're prepared to move is a key differentiator for us. Mm -hmm. And I think when you look at the way people's hearts get broken, it's just, it takes too, they, you know, people, people pay for these services and they're putting their reputation on the line, you know, fool me once, shame on you. And it's, and that's kind of what you're fighting against. But the technology is so good now that we're finding not a lot of friction in the marketplace. On the enterprise side, who do you think is sort of this like poster child for a company that truly embodies great customer experiences? This is a it's a tough question. It's one I get asked a lot. I should probably have a better answer, but let let's take for example Singapore Airlines. It's an iconic brand. My one of my favorite tweets uh, about Singapore Airlines, maybe it was Emirates. They had hit heavy turbulence and there's food there's drink everything's all it's all over the cabin it, i mean it's cr- cr- bloody it looks, mary's all yeah, over it looks like a crime scene 
Yeah. Right. <laughs> a timestamp photo from a passenger says, check out what just happened on this flight. Mm-hmm. And a timestamp photo seven minutes later of the cabin. And you're like, uh, everything's fine now. Is that process of knowing how to anticipate and deal with calamity when it, it will eventually occur? Because we're in the airline business, we're going to deal with this from time to time. The forethought of, okay, people are going to be scared. They would have gone through the same. They may have stuff all over them. Like, how do we deal with now two things? A functional problem, which is we've got to clean up this mess. Mm-hmm. And an emotional problem. is so that we've got a plane full of people who spent 10000 bucks on a ticket who are emotionally rattled. And watching some companies behave in moments of crisis is like watching a beautifully orchestrated Cirque du Soleil, right? It's, it's, is the best way to describe that. You know, the old saying, um, retail is detail. Retail, when you think about retail, some of the great um, experiences in retail, uh, hospitality, travel, and leisure, right? Ms. Carlton, obviously, um, garners a, a lot of that. And, and you know, um, hotels of the world. I mean, there's, there's Marriott is, is a good example of like, how do they deliver value consistently and well? And the question of which are the best brands, therefore, is a complex one for me because the idea behind IKEA is that they're not trying to be West Elm or Williams-Sonoma. Mm-hmm. They are occupying a brand space that essentially is a fortress. They have gone to such a length to shore up their market positioning. And what they're betting on is the psychology behind the behavior. And the ability to deliver that experience consistently and well for what people expect. So I think the little peach had a good customer experience. So do I. By things that they didn't do. The little peach was a terrible store by any, by basically any operational metric. Yeah. And they just made money hand over fist Mm -hmm. because every kid from the age of 16 to 21 would go hang out there and from a customer experience standpoint, what they did was not harass kids. If they had chased away kids, mm-hmm. they never would have had all of those auxiliary purpose, uh, purchases. And that's why they were successful. Yeah. It's so I'm here for four hours and I'm a kid. So I'm going to have four sodas and six candy bars and blah, blah, blah. Everybody hung out yeah. outside. That's right. Yeah. And har- hardly any of the experience about the Little Peach was inside the Little Peach. Yeah, it was all right outside of that brick wall. Yeah. So, and, and that was good for what their space wanted to be. They were a community place where community gets together. Mm-hmm. They never did a customer journey map. They never did an ideal target memory exercise. But if they did, that would have been it. You're, you're this iconic center of the town in sort of a way that just kind of happened organically. Yeah, yeah. Right? And you think about brands like Airbnb, They're, the speed at which they deal with issue resolution, the speed at which they execute communication, the way that they give the buyer direct access to having some experience with the property before they ever walk in the door so they can make an informed decision. Mm-hmm. The re- all those things are operationally driven. When companies talk about emotions that they try to evoke, I can always tie it back to something operational that occurs. Yeah. Because at some place, even if that operational thing is, we're going to give employees free reign because we trust our employees, there's still going to be boundaries to that. There's going to be rules that have to scale about what are the limits of that? What does that look like? 
And you can't just have employees running out all the time buying birthday cakes for dogs, right? Mm-hmm. You're saying like, oh, I'm upset because it's raining and you know, we pull your car. Like you can't, we can't do that. Mm-hmm. Well, hotels can do that, right? But most other most other places can't do that. So if we think about the best, the best in show for a long time in the financial services space, it was Washington Mutual. But really it's just credit unions. Yeah. Credit unions deliver a phenomenal targeted experience. Uh, in the hospitality, travel, and leisure space, depends on your budget. Yeah, I mean, Motel Six for the longest time, you know, has the most enthusiastic customers ever because it's you know, is it Tombow debt? Yeah, well, lead 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 operation, right? <laughs> and it and something really iconic about their service delivery, even though the product itself is rather basic. Mm-hmm. And if you change the sign, would would the scores go down? The answer maybe, mm-hmm. maybe you're walking in kind of with that expectation. If you think about the retail space. People often go to the Giants, right? Like Saks Fifth Avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think of Zappos. This is a good example, I think, for me. I mean, brands that really thought about what the problem was. And, the you know, sh- shoe shopping for Zappos. It's, you have to go to the store and buy shoes. And where do you do that? You have to do it in the mall. Well, that's terrible. And DSW said, well, we're not in the mall. And you could shop for 85 people at once. Mm-hmm. So come enjoy the savings. What Zappos did for me is, is it allowed me to be the lazy customer I've always wanted to be and say free returns. Yeah. And so when you think about what Zappos is, is it fills the need of time deficits that people have, not wanting to go buy shoes because it's a hassle, so they're making it easier. Um, but at the end of the day, how did they pull that off? Mm-hmm. They pulled it off through operations. That's how they delivered on that target memory. So if you think about the technology space, For example, everybody uh, naturally goes to Apple. But I think that there's Fitbit is a great technology. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that the the wearables have a a unique opportunity because they physically cling to the user. You know, I think that the, you know, from from a space that's focusing on CX in general is the the VR, AR, MR space. Yeah. that's inherently user-centric. Just its fundamental nature kind of goes that way. And when you look at the brands that score on the highest uh, levels, you know, you know, we gave the example of Singapore Airlines. And the one that scores the highest on the ACSI, right, it's JetBlue and Southwest. They compete in the low-cost carrier category. And the question is, is what is the value of that great experience? And we look at the way that great companies or great customer experience brands work, it's usually through things like the service profit chain, where you have these first fundamental principles that create really engaged, happy, fulfilled employees who ultimately have some degree of impact on the experience of the end customer. And the customers become more loyal as a result of those great experiences and have some kind of magnification or amplification of that through word of mouth, mm-hmm. and that those profits are then split between the firm and then reinvesting back into the people. And all the best companies have high-level engagement. So you'll, Richard Branson, right, very famous for saying, essentially, that you know, take care of your employees. Employees are more important than your customers because your employees take care of the customers. And I think that when you look at the best customer experience delivery firms, they understand implicitly the culture yeah. and employees are, it's like, it's like 95% of the game. That, that seems to be a general theme on this show that, that it all boils down to the employees. Yeah. 
Because you, because if you have an operational problem, you can fix an operational problem. Yeah. Try to fix a broken culture mm-hmm. or a stained culture. And that's one of the reasons that customer experience also is really critical is because, com- you know, people take pride in the places where they work. Yeah. You can, I mean, you look at Qualtrics employees and they are walking up the, you know, walking up the streets of every town that we're in and they're repping Qualtrics gear. Mm-hmm. And nobody ever told them to do that. They're excited to come into work every day. It's an electric atmosphere. Um, you look at great companies, right? You look at, you know, these iconic places and they know that if there's an ops problem, they can fix it. But if you break culture. Very hard. Super hard, super hard. And I, I actually, I struggle to think of, of more than two or three brands that ever recovered mm-hmm. from that type of breakdown. And so if you want to make sure that customer experience is being delivered to its highest possible level, you really have to get serious about how are we going to pull that off? And it's not just rules and processes, though that's part of it. It's what are we going to do different Mm -hmm. about the products that we make or the way that we allow employees to take ownership of the customer experience? It's uh, It can be really challenging. And there's this complete alternative, which is distributed responsibility. And distributed responsibility tends to be a far better mechanism for delivering superior customer experience because a centralized message comes from on high or somewhere in the middle and forces it out to its fingertips Mm -hmm. uh, of the organization. But that can only work when the organization's small and the level of touch between those nodes of the outer realm and the heart and the head and the hand are, are implicitly connected as firms grow and they become inherently more complex and they start to adapt to new markets, which is a very, common beginning point for firms to begin to suffer um, when people who work in a different company or a different country than me, but in the same company, but I don't see us as working at the same place, have, you know, culture then becomes very localized. Mm-hmm. So the process of decentralization came around to allow that, that flexibility to occur. You want to, hey, this is how we do business in the Southwest. But what a better model really was, was this distributed responsibility where there's this interconnectedness between each of the actors, each of essentially the managers of a business, of a region, or whatever, where there's this, it's, it's more of a web of a fabric of responsibility and ownership. Mm. So that when I go to Qualtrics in Dublin, the level of enthusiasm that I see in employees is identical to that I get in Provo, Utah, mm-hmm. to Dallas, Texas, to Sydney, Australia, Tokyo, Japan, Singapore, Paris, Munich, wherever I go. We have these super engaged employees that are all grinding hard yeah, to make yeah. sure that, that either we're taking care of customers 24-7 and the engineers aren't laying off. The engineers know that they got to hurry up because it's easier for our guy to pick up the phone and make a customer happy than it is for you to create technology. So you got to work 10 times as hard and 10 times as fast yep. to keep the same <laughs> level of work rate. Plus, that engineer is not only trying to help the customer, they're trying to help their teammate. And there's this kind of, and there's this, this sort of, uh, empathetic flow that customers who interact with great experience brands get that sense of, of oneness, of singularity that comes through, that you guys are talking to each other. You guys are speaking the same language. I know that you can't solve my problem right now, but you know, you had an issue and you put the head of, you know, the head of engineering on the phone with me and we talked about what your roadmap is. Like that's making me part of your culture too. That's, that's bringing me into the fold. And you can't do that without employees. Mm. You can't pull. You can't. You can't pull that off. You know, in most environments. But 
even in, in, in quick serve restaurants, for example, let's take Panera, for example, there are ways to help have people feel like they're at home, even if they're only at home for 20 minutes, they want you to feel familiar. You want you to feel looked after and cared for and that the food is made with care. They're very effective at making sure that people feel that without feeling rushed, which is a big deal, you know, because like you may be in a rush, but we're not the ones who are going to rush you. Mm -hmm. We're going to go as fast as you want to go or as slow as you want to. So to, to wrap up, I just have a couple more questions. The, the first one is that for enterprises who are listening, what advice would you give them? It could be one point, it could be multiple points uh, that can help them sort of bridge that customer experience gap that they may be facing right now. The primary advice that I would give firms is to be honest about what you really don't know because coming to the realization and starting to enumerate the number of things that you assume versus the things that you know can start to be a little unsettling. It's almost like, you know, if you were in college and you're hanging out with friends and it's late night and you're listening to some transcendental professor talking about the nature of being, and it, it just, it, it's the sort of thing that's so nebulous that the mind ultimately rejects it. It's an alternate reality that challenges and, and confounds too many of your operating principles and therefore is completely unacceptable. There's that, which is, hey, this thing is, that's completely goofball that's out there in, in the middle of the space versus I just don't want to think about how much I don't know because I don't like it. And you need to be honest about that. And I think if you come in with a focused vision and what it is that you really are trying to do, many managers will say, I'm trying to create an environment where we're really operating at our peak efficiency, that we're listening to customers, that we're reacting to their wants and needs in the marketplace, that we're thoughtfully including them as part of a value co-creation process to make sure that the company and the customer ultimately have shared experience. They say all these things. And then you ask them like, hey, are you measuring this, this, and that? Like, oh no, we, you know, we, it's just, it's not, we don't have time for that right now. Like, okay, so let's, let's be honest. You don't know how to do that, or you don't want to do that out of fear that it will fundamentally shift the process. It's, it's come at, come at this with the, with the process as it is and say, we want to know more. And the reason that people are resistant to that is because if they know something, then they have to do something about it. You can't wait. You can't let that feeling of being stuck in neutral plague your calendar. You have to move forward. You mm -hmm. have to learn. The customer may be changing. The customer may find new alternatives to you. You may not change at all and you can still get disrupted or you can be making mistakes that shouldn't exist. There may be parts of your process, parts of your process that need uh, updating your strategy, the products you sell, the way that you're coaching employees, the way that you hire, the way that you manage resources. There's all sorts of ambiguity. So I would just say that being honest with yourself about where you're at, if you look at some customer satisfaction number and you're like, yeah, this kind of says we're amazing, but I don't get the sense that we really are. Like I really don't. That sneaky suspicion is evident to everybody who works outside your company. 
right? Because of that process of people have difficulty recognizing those flaws within themselves that they can easily identify in others. Yeah. And th- this is beyond that path to self-awareness because that's where all the fixing takes place. And every great company that people can easily think of or say, this brand is amazing. They've all done that. That's one of the few things they all have in common in addition to having great culture uh, through their employees. So final question. Uh, I always like to end episodes with this segment called If I Only Knew. And so it's it's your chance to sort of reflect on on your career and say, oh, this is a great customer experience outcome. I wish I knew about this earlier because it could have helped my own career. What would be that sort of if I only knew moment? I think if I had learned earlier the value of strategy as it pertains to research, because I always read a lot and every every desk, every office I have is just occupied with books. And some of them just sit there for months on end because I just don't get around to certain things. But I, I, I don't stack up a book unless I read it. And as a result, I have a lot of books. And I didn't learn formally about strategy until I was at a company called Ahecom. And I had wonderful uh, mentors there, um, a woman named Jane Penny, uh, a guy named Mike Donnelly, uh, who's, you know, they're both fantastic people. And Mike put me up for this leadership development program that Aecom does. They take 30 executives and basically say, we hope you're going to be the future of the company. We're going to put you through essentially a couple of weeks of business school at UCLA Anderson. And I met some phenomenal professors, a guy uh, named John DeFigurito, who now teaches down at Fuqua. And through that experience enabled by Mike and Jane, um, and through the teachings of some world-class professors, I learned more about strategy in two weeks than I ever could have taught myself. And they were trying to teach me principles that were fundamental that I could go on to use in any way, shape, or form. But for me, what had immediately clicked was what was missing from my work. My game was research and advanced analytics, right? And I had some success doing those things, I should say. Obviously, the people around you are the ones who really make you successful, but those are those are the things that I was good at, but I couldn't take it to the conversation to another level. I could at the at my prior level, I could only talk to heads of research departments. I couldn't figure out the right way to talk to a CEO. And that skill set was if it wasn't for those two weeks, I don't know that I could have taken my own game to another level, which isn't to say that level is high. But that unlocked something completely new for me because at the time I was focusing on research and analytics. And when that process was over, I was focusing on decision science systems. If I had known the value of being taught strategy by people who really get it, I think could have accelerated my learning curve even further. And I'm happy that I've, I have that skill set now and primarily what it has taught me is that that concept of you're never done learning. You never know where insight's going to come from. You have to keep searching. That's why they call it research, right? And now I know that I think about all the other things I don't know. 
I don't understand finance implicitly. Like I get it. I know how to, you know, read sheets. I ran a, you know, business group and all that kind of stuff, but I don't really understand finance at its deepest level. I wonder what I could learn from the process of learning about finance that can add a really deep weapon that few can possess, right? It's like, I know how to calculate ROI, but maybe that's not enough for the finance guy. I don't know. Like it is because it, it establishes a business case, but maybe I'm not speaking that person's language enough. I can talk to the strategy person now. I can talk to the marketing person now. I can't talk to the finance person yet. So you have to learn. Like, you know, you come out with an MBA degree, you don't know how to really do what it is that successful consultants do. Same thing is true when you get out with a master's degree. It's like now you've got the skill set. Now you've got to sharpen sharpen your weapons. And that took a long time. I feel like I'm at a place where if I had sharpened more tools simultaneously. This is kind of my mantra is you can have all the information in the world in your head, but if you can't get it from point A to point B, that information is, in my mind, worthless. You have to be able to get it you yeah. know, from point A to point B. I hear that, but then I also hear sort of the underlying theme of you that I think is like your your makeup is you're just a very curious person. Like you're like, you're like I look funny. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. like like you just said, you you know finance. And I think ninety nine percent of the people that probably have the same knowledge that you have would say I'm I'm comfortable with that. Like I'm I'm okay. But you want to obviously take it to the next level because you've seen that value of taking something to the next level, what that key opens up for other areas of your life. Just, just my own opinion. I, I think that's it's awesome. I think that's a great, great takeaway to have. Cool, awesome. Well, Luke, well, thank you for coming today. This was an excellent conversation. So many great things to to walk away with. Uh, to to everybody listening, you can find out more about customer experience on the Dispatch blog. That is blog.dispatch.me. You'll also find all of the links to connect with Luke to get in contact with Qualtrics. Uh, anything we discussed on the show, it will all be in the show notes. Again, Luke, this was an awesome, awesome conversation. Thanks for coming on the show. Cheers, Tyler. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. If you want to learn more about customer experience, head over to the Dispatch blog. That is blog.dispatch.me. Remember to subscribe to In The Know on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. And as always, thanks for joining, and we'll see you next episode.